I'm Adrian Sykes. Welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. This is part two of my conversation with David Grant, MBE. If you haven't had a chance to check out part one, please go back and listen. So after a very successful period as an artist, David decided to make a career change and look at what was next for him professionally. But did he have a plan? Once you've come through that point, there's clearly a moment with all music stars where no one stays at the top forever. But you're able to transition into TV. So I'm really interested about that moment where the music career is is winding down and you're looking at what the next opportunity is. How, at a time when there were very few black faces or or people of colour on mainstream TV, did you get your chance to kind of first present an incredibly successful show on CBeebies, then work with the wonderful Carrie on Fame Academy and working on Popeye? What was that transition period? What propelled you into thinking, this part of my career is over, I'm going to go here? Because there's always a sense of artists wanting to cling on a one more record, one more shot. I know I can do it. I know I can come back. Do you know what's interesting is that I used to read biographies all the time, yeah? And the majority of biographies that I read, they they were kind of my staple reading material and my staple source of inspiration. I'd read the biographies and the biographies that I loved most were the biographies of people who'd had it, lost it and come back. That was That was the thing for me, you know, that like, it's, it's like the setback is always the setup for the comeback. But then when it happens to you, it doesn't feel like that. You realize that most of these biographies are written with the benefit of hindsight when you can look back and you can put all the random pieces because they're random at the time into place and go, oh, wasn't it obvious that this is what I was doing? So I want to start by saying, if there's anybody listening to this who were earlier on in their career or are having setbacks, most people who come back, stumble into stuff. Most people, even though at the end, when you write it up, it's written that like, this was always an overarching plan. This was, you know, a grand strategy. You stumble into opportunity and then it's how you react. So what happened was I actually sold more records as a solo artist than I did in links. And I hated it. And the reason I hated it is because I realized that Actually, I loved having hits. Don't get me wrong. I loved being successful. But I was a team player. And I I used to describe it like this. Not being in a band anymore. Not having other people around me. Felt like having a joke. Getting to a great punchline. And having no one to tell it to. You know. So I've got a hit. I'm going to jump around and celebrate on my own. I'm going to open a bottle of bubbly on my own. I'm going to pour out a glass on my own. I'm going to say cheers to myself and have a drink. What kind of life is that? And then I'm going to go out and smile and go, this is great. Because we all collude in the kind of illusion that without people, it's fine. Success is all you need. You don't need people. But actually, you know what? It's the people around you. It's having the right people around you that make it all worthwhile. So I didn't enjoy it, but I had a manager who really absolutely believed in me. who said, what do you want to do? You know, I had solo hits that I, I I enjoyed the hits, 
I didn't enjoy the period. I had duet hits with Jackie Graham, which I loved because I was working with somebody else. You know, people say to me, did you like doing Could It Be I'm Falling In Love and Mated? And I liked them not because they were hits, but because I was doing it with Jackie. I'm, I am the ultimate team player, all right? And I thought for my ego that I needed to be a solo artist, but actually for my stability, mental health, and actual just sheer enjoyment, I need to be in a team, even if it's just like, there's me and there's a manager and there's an MD and there's a this and there's a that. That's why I used to love doing stuff with you. I'd go around and we'd talk about everything, not just music, not just the charts. You were so totally unimpressed with the music business and with my music that I felt I could be myself. <laughs> I didn't have to be David Grant, the pop star. I could be David Grant, the geezer from Hackney. And that really worked for me. So I got married to Carrie at the point that the career started to wind down, it had kind of begun to wind down and I had stopped doing personal appearances and stopped doing promotional stuff because I kind of stopped enjoying it. You know, I, I, within a few years of being married, I just thought I don't enjoy this anymore. I don't enjoy standing on a stage doing songs that I wrote five or six years ago. I want to do something that's relevant to who I am now. I need to find what that thing is. Now, here's where the, the luck came in. In the mid eighties, I was in New York recording an album and in the studio next to me was a guy called Fonzie Thornton and I got on really well with Fonzie. Fonzie's best friend was Luther Vandross and Luther would come in some days and help Fonzie do his vocals. He would produce Fonzie's vocals. So I got talking to Luther Vandross and I said, cause I was like a massive fan, a massive like off the chart Luther fan. How do you do this, that, and the other? And he started using technical terms. And because I didn't want to look stupid, I just grin and nod and go, yeah, yeah, oh, great. I'll try that next time. I don't understand a word he was saying. <laughs> so I asked Fonzie how, to, how I could learn this stuff. And he said, oh, well, we have a vocal coach. And that's the first time I realized that people like Luther and like Aretha and like Gladys Knight, the people I loved, they didn't just like, walk up, get out of bed one morning, open their mouths and out came this voice. They worked at it. That was the product of thousands of hours of work, of tuition, of instruction, of actually learning. And I was like, maybe I could be the singer that I've always wanted to be. Maybe there isn't just inevitable, you get what you got and that's it, you know? And so I went to his vocal coach and started learning and became obsessed with learning about my voice. Just about the time I stopped using it, for performance was the time that I started to know most about it. I did some theatre, but all the time I was learning, I did vocal arranging. I became a session singer and implementing what I was learning. One day I was asked to do a vocal arrangement on a track or get some singers together rather to do a take that track called Pray. So I did Pray. And I did Top of the Pops with them with six singers. I was there. You I were mean, there? I, no, I was there. I mean, it, it was the first time you and I had reconnected for a while. And I was there with an artist I had on the show. I remember you and Carrie being there at L Street. And so I was like, David, where have you been? And there I was. So you were there. Well, what was funny is that the guys had come down from their dressing room when they heard us rehearsing. Because I was like, even if we are not going to be singing live, even if they're going to be using the record, we are going to sing live and we're going to sound great. So we sang and they came down and then they said, how'd you make this sound? How'd you make that sound? How'd you make it sound like this? So I told them, because by then I'd had years of vocal coaching lessons and they started singing, going, blimey, that's amazing. So anyway, we did the Top of the Pops. 
thought no more of it. The next day, we get a call from their management saying, the boys want you to coach them. And I was like, vocal coaching? Me? You're having a laugh. I am David Grant, vocal arranger extraordinaire, ex-pop star. I don't do vocal coaching. So, but I didn't want to lose the gig. So I told them I'd do it for a price and I gave them my actual singing price and they said, yeah, fine. So I found myself as a vocal coach. Well, anyway, Carrie wasn't with me. I did one morning with them in their rehearsal studio out in the countryside. I got on the phone to Carrie at lunchtime and said, I think I found the thing I want to do for the next phase of my career. I loved it because it wasn't just vocal coaching. It was mentoring. It was getting inside people's heads. It was working out how to elicit the best from them. It was getting them to believe there was a best in them. And then watching them as they sang within minutes, looking at each other like, wow, we haven't sounded like this and starting to believe in themselves in a way they hadn't before. And I realized there was so much more to it than just about the voice. It was about the whole person. So we vocal coached, vocal coached a whole load of stars because we're going, we vocal coached, take that. They vocal coached, take that. We want them and we want them and we want them. Ended up with Simon Fuller, who managed the Spice Girls and then managed S Club 7, giving us a call saying, will you do S Club 7? And we were like, yeah, sure, no problem. So we did the S Club 7 tour and then came a call saying, we've got this show we're doing called Pop Idol. Would you be vocal coaches on it? And we said, well, what does that entail? Because we don't just want to come in and help people sing songs. We actually want to make them better singers. And like, yeah, that's what we're after too. So we did that. After one day of them filming us, rehearsing, they had an ITV2 program said, right, we want you to do the ITV follow-up show like they do with X Factor. But it was then obviously, you know, with Pop Idol, Pop Idol 2. We want you to do that every Saturday night with Kate Thornton. And there started the TV career. Every Saturday night we'd sit, we'd talk about the show, we'd comment. People loved it. There were a couple of million viewers on ITV2 watching it. And the next thing you know, we got a call from the BBC saying, we're doing a talent show. Will you be judges on it? And a, a TV, we stumbled into it, but we were ready because we'd had the years of coaching. We were prepared. And it's, you know, like, it's a lucky break, but it wasn't luck. It was an opportunity that arrived when preparation was already in place. And one of the things that I'm determined, I was determined not to be, and I loved, I loved being a singer. I loved having records on the charts. In fact, I may go back to being a singer because I loved it so much. And now I don't need it in the way that I needed it then. I love it more because I'm just, I'm back to being the kid on the sofa with a wig on and a broom. I'm just doing <laughs> it because I love it because I've got to. But I love coaching. I love presenting. And at every stage of, of, of my career and with every reinvention, I've gotten to do something that was appropriate for who I was at that time. That in itself is a blessing because I've been able to say, you know what? I'm not who I was when I was 20 and I don't have to pretend to be because I don't want to be. I don't want to be that person. If I was who I was when I was 20, I'd have wasted 40 years. So do you think you've been able to fulfill all your TV ambitions? Oh, no. And that's the other thing. You know, I'm still a two person. I have so many dreams. I'm still creating so many things. 
Oh, my desires. My desires and ambitions are different because ambition is something where you want personal advancement. Desire for me is that I want to see greater representation, not just racially. I want to see greater representation generationally. I want to see a greater representation of understanding with music. Now, I want people to understand you know, what it's about and why they love it and what that thing that you go, oh, I really like it when this happens. Why do you like it? What is it that's happening? I want to be able to explain things to people. I want to be able to go, here's a great singer, you know, listen to this voice. Here is what that person is doing. And if you're into singing, you can do it too. If you do this, this and this, you're not going to sound like them because you have your own voice. But here's how they do it. You know, it's not just here's an easel, here's a brush, here are paints, here are the brush strokes, here are how they mix their colours. Now you go and mix your colours. So that's something I'd love to do on TV. Let's dial back a, a little bit because one of the things you said there that was really interesting was about representation and about diversity. And someone that we both mutually know, Lenny Henry, has been very, very vocal about the need for real diversity and representation, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera. Given that you've had a fantastic career in TV and continue to have a career in TV, what is your thought about that? And do you believe that TV opportunities are diverse, that they are fair, that they, that they allow people of colour to really explore their true potential? I think that one of the things that really has to change is that there need to be more people of colour behind the camera. There need to be more people of colour directing. There need to be more people of colour producing. There need to be more people of colour editing. Why? Because some people will say, well, it's creativity. What does colour have to do with it? What colour has to do with it is representation. What colour has to do with it is that I see the world different to the next person. I see the world different to you, but we as black people would see the world different to white people because our experience of the world is different. The Asian experience is different. You know, the Chinese experience is different. And there's not just one type of black person. The African experience is different to the Caribbean experience. Why is it important? Because what's important is that we as viewers are allowed to see the world through as many different eyes and contours and in as many different contexts as possible. We can only know what we know. And if somebody knows something experientially that would inform what he said their when world, I, asked him. I want to know that because I want to be able to see the world through someone else's eyes. And I think that that's really important. I also think it's essential that there are no avenues that are barred, that there are no parks that we can't go kick the ball in, that there are no roads that we can't walk on, that there are no clubs where we, people can say, well, you know, yeah, you can come in, but you can't dance at the dance floor. Yeah, you can have a seat at the table, but you can't eat the food. I think that there, there are still no-go areas and those no-go areas must be turned into go areas. And how different do you think that is now to when you started? Do you see change? Do you see a real movement towards that, those opportunities being opened up for, for those that are coming next? That's a really good question. And I see that there have been some areas of great difference, but there are others that are still the same. What I see is that, for instance, back in the late 70s, I used to watch TV and there was a black woman called Grace Kennedy and she had her own show. We talk about entertainment TV and on the other side, there was a show called, uh, on BBC, there was a show called Three's Company and Lenny Henry was in that. 
And on the other side, there was another show and Kenny Lynch was fronting that. And we're talking about prime time, Saturday night, shiny floor TV shows. And I look for black people with their own prime time, shiny floor TV shows, and there aren't any now. So we have fewer now than we had 40 years ago. So that needs to change. And how do we change that? What, what's the route for that? Because obviously, more than ever before, there's been a real movement to try and engage and enact and move towards greater diversity. So do you think that's a desire for real change within the industry or, again, just lip service? Because some will say that's the case. It's just window dressing. I think there's a desire for real change among many people. I really think there's a desire for real change, but I think that there's, a, there's also a fear that I think overwhelms and overrides the desire for change. And the fear comes from saying, will our audience like it? It's almost as though people are unaware of the fact that 40 years ago, Britain was a much more overtly racist country. Although interestingly, I think since Brexit and things black, since Black Lives Matter and since the growth of populism within politics, people who have found their ideas to be unpalatable and their expressions to be unacceptable have suddenly found their voice again. So, you know, like there was overt racism in the 50s, 60s, 70s. It died off a bit in the 80s. It disappeared in the 90s and the noughties. And now suddenly all those people go, oh, I can say that again. I can call you what I want to again. I can, you know, because actually it's legitimate. So did it ever go away? I don't know. But I do think that those who are for integration, for equality, are greater in number than they were. Even though those who are against it are more vocal and because of social media have a platform again. What I think is often the case is that those people who... Uh, shiny floor shows have changed. You know, it's, it, it's, it's right that there aren't, there aren't black people there doing it anymore. But with the exception of a couple of comedians, there aren't even working class people they're doing it anymore. If you look at most of the most of the shiny floor shows now are fronted by comedians, most of the comedians or presenters who front them are from middle class backgrounds. Certainly the newer ones, more and more and more. You see, it's like, you know, it's becoming more posh people TV. So if you're black and you're not posh, then you're at a double disadvantage. We have to say, you know, in terms of fairness, that if you look at Channel 4 with Big Nasty, Mo Gilligan, there's, there are those guys that are actually trying to break down those walls and trying to come through. But clearly, we still have a long way to go. Oh, we have a long way to go. I'm so delighted when I look at the success of Big Nasty because, to be honest, you know, Big Nasty is like, he's like the guys that I grew up with. He's probably like the guys that you grew up with. And let me tell you, that kind of black man would never have been allowed near TV 40, 30, 20 years ago. You know, it had to be like the the guy who was very articulate or was very funny but and could laugh at himself. Big Nasty just always sounds like he's laughing at you. He's not laughing at himself. You know, Big Nasty and Mo Gilligan, they're, they're in charge. They're not kowtowing or bowing to anybody. And I believe that they're indicative of the new breed of black entertainer and not just the new breed of black entertainer, but the new breed of young black people. You know, back in the day, we protested against racism, but there are things that we we swallowed and we just went, you know what, this is just the way it is, that our kids don't swallow. 
These these people, they're not they're not swallowing it. They're going, hold on a minute, I'm not accepting that. You know, I'm, I'm having a conversation with somebody 40 years ago. They may say two unacceptable things, but if at the end they get to my point and they agree with me, I'll swallow that. I'll think less of them, but I'll swallow it. Now, with my kids, you say the first unacceptable thing is, hold on, we need to have a conversation about this. Forget the destination. We need to have a conversation about the road you're walking on because the road is wrong. And I actually, that's one of the things that really encourages me. I know people have looked back. Certainly, you know, I talked to, I talked to friends, I talked to family and they go, it feels sometimes like it hasn't changed. I'll tell you what's changed, we've changed. Does David Grant regard himself as a pioneer? I suppose in some ways, yes. Just by virtue of the time frame and the time that I was around, yes. In terms of trying to open a door, yes, and I'm still trying to do that. I think you can only judge a pioneer by their actions. You see, to me, life is made up of pioneers and settlers. And pioneers attempt to go to places where people aren't. And they clear the ground and they make it habitable and they take on the hostility of those who are there already. And they take on and they overcome and they create a road that settlers can come in and walk on and settle that ground. And by the time the settlers have gone, the pioneers have moved on to the next thing. So I hope I'm still a pioneer. I don't want to be a settler. I don't want to be somebody who's in like carpet slippers in front of the TV, putting my feet up. There are still too many mountains to climb. There are too many lands to conquer. There are still too many ideas to express. And as you look back with a career still in front of you, but with with the hindsight of all the experiences, what are the differences for black artists now that have changed from 40 years ago? I suppose the differences that I see for black artists now is that there are many. There are more avenues. There are avenues. You can make your music. You can put it up on social media. You can build a following. You can find your people and your people can find you in a way that they could never have done because nobody would even hear your music unless the gatekeepers allowed you in and they released your music. So they had a greater influence on it. If Lynx was starting in 2020 instead of instead of 1980, your line would have come out on our own label. You would be able to get it on Spotify, on Amazon, on everywhere else. All the promotion would have been on social media. In lockdown, we'd have been doing lockdown gigs. We'd have been making our own video. We'd have been doing the stuff that young people do now who were saying, you know what, I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting for a record company to pick me up. I'm not waiting for somebody to walk in or ride in on a white charger going, we're going to rescue you and turn you into stars. I'm going to do it myself. And now if you're driven and if you've got drive, you can do more than go into a record studio and make your record and then press it up and hope that somebody buys it you can make your music and you can present it to your public you can find your market and you can self-determine in a way that we couldn't and that's what's changed when I meet artists now so I'm just I'm just desperate for a record company to sign me I'm like you're 40 years late in the history of the world if you believe in it, do it yourself. And if nobody else backs you, back yourself. And if nobody else propels you, propel yourself. And if nobody else promotes you, promote yourself. Because that's what's changed.
What's been the part of your career that's given you the most fulfillment and the most enjoyment? The part of my career that's given me the most enjoyment is now. It's when people come in now and they say, these are my dreams, walk with me. This is my goal, mentor me. This is my desire, how do I reach there? This is my destination, what's the road? Help me build a road. Because everybody has to build their own road. And that's the difference that's changed from the immigrant attitude that we grew up with, with to the attitude that I try and imbibe in my own children, which is then there was the generation ahead of us that believed that you get a good job, you go to the post office, you go to wherever, the civil service. And that was right for some people. But if you're the person that it's not right for, you can build your own road. And my, my love is helping people build their road. And then watching them, watching them, you know, build their runway and watching them take off. That's what really floats my boat. It's like, you know, do you want to fly? I'll help you build your runway. What's your hope for people of colour in the arts in the 21st century? And you're invested in it, not just because you're a part of that world, but your daughter is a successful actress. Well, yeah, I've got two daughters. I've got one in Hollyoaks and one who's currently in Budapest doing um, a series for Steven Spielberg called Halo. And she's one of the stars of that. So I've got two in the business and, you know, their attitude is, is so different to mine. I realise that it took, it took years, Adrian, at the start of my career before I felt like I belonged, before I felt, I, I immediately felt like this is what I should be doing. Don't get me wrong. But it was like, all the people above me, all the execs and all the others. And, you know, how do I, how do I match that? And they feel like they belong. They have a sense of ownership that it took me years to get. And my desire for black people, black artists, black creatives in the 21st century is that you have a sense of ownership. You have a place here. And if you have to kick down a door, kick it down. And if you have to build a door and hew it out of the rock, then get a hammer and chisel and hew it out of the rock. Because once you've built that door, other people can follow you. And to remember, I stood on the shoulders of giants. And just the thought that there may be somebody who then stood on our achievements and somebody else who then stood on their achievements mean that I'm, I may be a very small brick in a very big wall, but I am invested in that wall. I feel as though I want that wall to grow higher and higher. And remember, I say this to my kids and I say to any young black person, you have an experience, you have a life and you have an identity that nobody else has. You have a way of expressing that nobody else has. You have a uniqueness that nobody else has. You have stories to tell. You have songs to write. You have songs to sing. You have things to create that if you don't create them, they will never exist. Do it. Who are the people that are most inspirational in your life? The people that really gave you the belief that you could do it and were your support system? Okay, the people that gave me the belief that I could do it. Gran didn't understand it, but when people were telling me to quit it, she told me to keep going. We all need one person who will say, keep going. Even when it doesn't look like it's going to be worth it, keep going. 
Uh, Brian Freshwater came along at exactly the right time. He became my manager. He would say, look, I believe in you. Keep going. This was in the early days. Erskine, when he came on board, said, you are going to be big at this. Keep going. Don't lose yourself in it. Remember who you are. This works because of who you are, not because of what you do. Keep going. I knew Erskine from, from working at Ireland. And at Ireland, he would always ask me the questions. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Where are you going with it? What are you trying to say? And he would, he would always, he, he'd always appear to be slightly disapproving because he'd never give me a steer. He'd make me ask those questions of myself. And sometimes when I started answering him, he'd walk off because there were rhetorical questions. You ask yourself the questions. When you've worked out the answer, come and see me. And as an artist, he then, he, he started off when we released our first record, You're Lying, promoting us. And he would say to me, the crowd loved it tonight, but you know, you were talking nonsense. I go, what do you mean? He said, well, <laughs> you said this, you said that, yeah. He said, but you're making yourself hostage to fortune. Are you having a good time? If they say no, where'd you go from there? He said, you don't ask the crowd questions, you tell them stuff. Then I go, okay, fine. <laughs> then he go, you're walking from one side of the stage to the other. I go, well, I've seen so many artists because I used to go to gigs and take notes. That's what artists do. He go, no, it's not. If you walk to the right of the stage, it's because you're going there for a purpose. What were the purpose? You're not a pedestrian. <laughs> okay. So what do I do when I get there? Sing to them. Look at them. Get them to clap. Do something. If you are walking on the stage, you have to have a reason. If you don't have a reason, stand still. Okay. Why did you sing that riff? I've been practicing that riff for ages. It sounds great. Why are you singing it? If you don't have a reason, shut up. He actually made me discipline myself as an artist and think of myself as an artist. I suddenly wasn't a kid in my bedroom singing to the mirror. If I was going to be a professional entertainer, I had to have a purpose. I had to have a cause. And he more than anybody when I was having solo hits made me think about why I was singing. I came from Top of the Pops one day and he was still in his office and I said, Erskine, the record's in the top 10, man. And he looked at me and he went, yeah, yeah, congratulations. And I said, what do you mean congratulations? You seem quite like downbeat about it. And he said to me, chum man, you're not defend nothing. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, because you used to sing for me. You used to sing for a whole load of people. Now you're singing to have hits. It's a different thing. And he made me think. And, you know, later on, many years later, when I decided, right, I'm, 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 I'm going to stop performing. I'm going to stop singing now. It wasn't because I didn't want to sing, because I loved singing. It's because the truth of those words, what are you defending? What is the purpose? The truth of those words stuck with me. And even today, when I mentor young artists, when I teach people, I say, why are you singing? What's the purpose? What's the cause? What are you trying to say? Because if it's about your ego and the size of your record sales and the number in the chart that your record reaches, you're in the wrong business because you're looking for approval. And if you're looking for approval in the music business, you are looking in the wrong place. Amazing. So what is your one priceless memory from your time in the music business? I have so many, but my one priceless memory 
in the music business is the end of the first Lynx tour, three nights at Dominion where I'd gone to see so many gigs. It was my favourite theatre. When we went to our promoter, they said, we can do Hammersmith Apollo, we can do blah, 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 the Hammersmith Odeon as it was in those days. And I said, I want to do, I want to do the Dominion. Please, can we do the Dominion, please? Yeah, I book into the Dominion, we'll sell it out. He booked one night, sold straight away, booked two, sold straight away. So we ended up doing three, which was great. My grandmother had been saying to me the whole time, what is why you do? You're telling me, say, you, you, you stand on a stage and you sing. What? And then pay for And make your money. I go, yeah, yeah. I don't understand it. Anyway, so I'm like, right, I know what I'm going to do. I booked the Royal Box. I put my family in there. I got a limo to pick up my gran. You've got to remember, at this time, still, I'm a pop star living in a council house in Hackney, all right? Because I haven't made any money yet. And gran <laughs> came in a, in a limo. You're laughing because you know in the music business the disconnect between actually selling records and getting any money from it. It can be ages. So, like, everybody's going, you're a star. And I'm, like, walking down the road going, I've got, like, five quid in my pocket. If the record company weren't sending cars for me, I'd be on the bus. And I remember actually, after your line was a hit, still going to the studio on the bus. Still every day going on the bus. So anyway, Gran, I've got a limo for her. She came and Usher met her at the door, escorted her to the Royal Box. She sat in the Royal Box, watched the whole show. At the end of the show, she came running up to me. There was a reception afterwards because it was the final show. And they were filming it, the record company were filming it, and they filmed this moment because I talked about my granny in interview so much. And she hugged me and she said, son, that was wonderful. Now I see what you do. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, I'm so proud of you. But you jump around so much and you do the splits and everything. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I told you I danced a lot, Gran. And she said to me, yes, but you're doing the splits a lot, son. I said, I know. She said, let me ask you something. Now, remember, we are surrounded by people at this point, And there's a camera, light on one side, camera on the other. My granny looks at my eyes. She said, son, do you wear a jockstrap? Because if you keep doing that, you're going to boss up your seed. That's arguably my most memorable moment. My moment of triumph with my granny asking me if I wear a jockstrap. And finally, what is the David Grant legacy? Wow. I don't know yet because I haven't finished building yet. I've still got so much work to do. Up to this point, hopefully the David Grant legacy may be that we showed or I showed early in my career that a black artist could come along with an idea of their own, do it themselves and still break through. You know, we were doing then what people are doing now, only there's more a, a, a capacity and a facility to do it now. I hope my legacy will be, when I finish this, I hope my legacy will be countless people inspired to believe in their own greatness. Countless people inspired to look and go, if he could do it, we could do it. Countless people inspired to say, I've got something and I believe it. And maybe David Grant helped me to believe it. And I'm going to take that something and I'm going to supersize it and I'm going to build it and I'm going to create something out of it. And then the next lot that come behind me, they're going to climb the steps that I build and then they're going to build their own. And if my legacy is anything, Adrian, I want it to be 
one of an encourager, one of a seer, somebody who could see the greatness that was in other people and enable them to elicit it from themselves. That's, that's what I really want. I want my legacy to be the lives of other people. David Grant, MBE, thank you for joining us on Did You Know? Thank you for having me. I'm Adrian Sykes. Thanks for listening to Did You Know? A Downstreet production. Thanks to David for sharing his story. And to my partner in crime and true pioneer, Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, our production team of Cass Denton and Lanique Swartz, and to Ella Ruby on the socials. Our theme tune is composed by Vega Brothers. Honourable mentions to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Keep listening for further information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode of Did You Know, where we talk to Natasha Mann, Director of Diversity and Inclusion, at Universal Music Group about her career to date in the music business. This was Did You Know? Until the next time.